0: Wow, such beautiful music. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for your hospitality. It's wonderful to um uh, to be with you all during this series and uh to um uh to reconnect uh, with uh, old friends and uh with uh, uh with new ones as well. So it's wonderful to see you all. I was thinking a couple of things as uh, Jerry was making that introduction, very gracious by the way, Jerry, thank you. Um, one is that Muzan was always for me like that older brother that you you had to, you, you sort of had to live up to that older brother. You know, it's like it's like the kid that has the older brother who's the football star and then he comes along on the team and it was kind of like that for me, uh, always both an inspiration Muzan. And, uh, and also uh, an aspiration for me. And I'm grateful to you for, for your ministry and for your encouragement uh, through all the years. And I also, I had a memory of, of Tula, uh, your mother. Um, when Jerry was introducing, he said something about being a smart kid, going to college, as I did out of my junior year. But Tula always had a nickname for me. And it was Dumb Kid. <laughs> she always, she would say, hey, Dumb Kid. And, of course, give me a big hug then. And, uh, and gosh, I, I, uh, I miss that. Um, she was such a wonderful lady. And so funny and fun and, uh, and full of life and joy. And um, just, just a blessing uh, to us. And uh, so I just, I I had that wonderful memory. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Dumb kid. (laughs) And uh, anyway, Uh, it's wonderful to be with you and to continue this series. We're, um, of course, spending some time with the Apostle Paul and specifically with one of the great lists in the New Testament, as I have uh, said over and over again, Uh, this list that isn't, is a description of what Paul calls the fruit of the spirit. When we live in the spirit, we should also walk in the spirit, Paul says. When I was having a conversation yesterday morning with a couple of young adult classes that met together for kind of Q&A time, someone asked the question, "Well, what what is what is our role in this exactly? I mean, is Paul saying that we just open our lives To God, and God just works through us, and our lives somehow bear this fruit. I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. And if you read Paul's letters, you see that what Paul is really saying all along the way is that there's a kind of partnership between us and God. Now, Paul even says when he's defending his own apostleship, because that was always under attack or being questioned by people, after all, Paul never met Jesus. During Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, didn't know him, was not one of the disciples, and yet here he is, an apostle. A lot of people are saying, he's no apostle. He didn't know Jesus. But he defended his apostleship all the time, uh, saw himself as one untimely born who came along later on, uh, experienced the risen Christ after everyone else. But when he defended his apostleship, he would He he said, I worked harder than any of them, meaning the other apostles. But then he very quickly said, well, it was not I, it was the grace of Christ with me. But I worked harder than any of them, but it was the grace of Christ with me. It was as though Paul was saying both things, and he did all the time. This is kind of a partnership. It's that way with the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is, is not simply saying this is something that we passively open our lives to, but rather it is a partnership that God is working in us, but it's not just God. We work hard. We uh, live a disciplined life, but God's working in us. But it's not just God. (laughs) We have something to do as well. And when we do that, when we follow the Spirit, when we walk in the Spirit, then our lives bear this fruit. A few years ago, I met a, a very interesting man whose company sells security Devices, but a particular kind of security devices. They're devices that recognize unique characteristics of people. And so they gain access or they identify people based on those characteristics. And so his company would sell uh, sell things like thumbprint scanners, because that's unique, voice recognition systems, retina scanners, facial scanners, and hand architecture scanners as well, because all of those things are are unique to each one of us. But the one that fascinated me the most was gate recognition systems. G-A-I-T, gate recognition. The way you walk. Did you know that your way of walking is unique? That you can be identified by your walk, he told me, 500 feet away, In any kind of weather. That's pretty amazing, I think. You have a unique walk. Paul says that if we are walking in the Spirit, people ought to be able to recognize that 500 feet away in any kind of weather. We have a unique walk. And he describes the aspects of that walk. What should they be able to recognize even at a distance and even when the weather is stormy, even when things are tough, they should be able to recognize love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control by the walk that we have. You know I'm obsessed with aviation, and so there are always going to be aviation stories. And part of the reason for that is I'm away from my church. They're sick of them, so I'm giving them to you. (laughs) But I remember when I received my pilot certificate, I emailed uh, a friend of mine who is a retired American Airlines pilot and told him about it. He sent a very short email back, and it just said, Congratulations, you will always be a pilot. He said, Is your walk different? That's interesting, isn't it? I guess he meant, am I cocky now? Do I walk in a different way? But you know, I, I think once we become a follower of Christ, that's a question that perhaps someone would say, you're a follower of Christ, okay. Is your walk different? Is it recognizable at a distance? I think Paul is challenging us with that kind of question when he says, if you live in the Spirit, you ought to also walk in the Spirit. And so we're looking at that description of what that looks like. And we've been talking, of course, about scanning our lives. I won't go back through all of that, but we're scanning our lives. We're taking a look like a pilot scans an instrument panel and scans outside the airplane. We're scanning inside of ourselves, outside of us, in the network of relationships, the community, and and even the larger world, and what does that look like when we're scanning? Do we see the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and Lent is a great time for us to focus on that kind of thing. So, these two characteristics we're looking at tonight um, are generosity and faithfulness. Generosity and faithfulness. Now, if you learned, the, if you memorized the fruit of the Spirit at some point, you probably memorized the one we're looking at tonight as goodness. In the King James Version and in the Old Revised Standard Version, both of those, it's goodness. But in the New Revised Standard Version, they translate it generosity, and that's the version that I've been following in this series, generosity. It's a rare word. It only appears four times in the New Testament, and it never appears in classical Greek at all. And it's usually translated goodness wherever it appears in the New Testament in those, in those times. But the committee that translated the, RS, the NRSV, the, the New Revised Standard Version, made the decision to translate it generosity. Why? Those seem like different words, goodness and generosity. And I've pondered that. I think, for one thing, if you think about it, goodness and generosity are bound up together. I mean, have you ever known a person that you would say, that's a good person, when you couldn't also say, that's a generous person? Or is there anyone that you would say, that is a genuinely generous person, but not so good? I mean, they do go hand in hand, right? Generosity and goodness. But there's more to it than that. When you look at that word carefully, the word is not just goodness as a state of being. It's goodness acted out. It's goodness in action. And so there's one translation that translates it benevolence. Because it's a more active word than sort of that static state of being, good. This is goodness acted out. And so generosity is really a very good translation of that word. And generosity is such a part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Fully a third of Jesus' teachings had to do with generosity, with how we handle our possessions and our money specifically. Where we lay up our treasures, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, laying them up not on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves can break in and steal, but laying up our Treasures in heaven where moth or rust cannot consume, where thieves cannot break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, it's a spiritual matter. Where our treasure is, our heart follows. And so generosity is an important aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's generosity in every way. It's generosity not only in the way we handle possessions, but it is generosity in the way we handle all of our lives, all that we have and all that we are. Are we generous? It's a really good indicator about our walk, about the way we're living out our faith, about the way that we are following in the way of Christ. Now Paul, in Second Corinthians, is doing what Paul usually does in his letters. He's answering questions, he's settling disputes, he's straightening out problems in the churches that are still very young, churches that he founded. He's answering theological questions. But when you read Paul's letters, you realize that he's also raising money. I mean, preachers do that, and Paul is, is doing that. and He's doing that because there's a famine around Jerusalem, and he's raising funds uh, to help provide food. Uh, for those uh, in and around Jerusalem. And so he writes about that in 2 Corinthians. We're in the ninth chapter. And uh, as he's writing about this, this is the 5th, I'm going to begin with the 5th verse. He says, This is why I thought it was necessary to encourage the brothers to go to you ahead of time and arrange in advance the generous gift you've already promised. They made a pledge. And he's sending them then to ahead of time to prepare them so that they can be prepared to give that. He says, I want it to be a real gift from you. I don't want you to feel like you are being forced to give anything. What I mean is this. The one who sows a small number of seeds will also reap a small crop. And the one who sows a generous amount of seeds will also reap a generous crop. Everyone should give whatever they've decided in their heart. They shouldn't give with hesitation or because of pressure. God loves a cheerful giver. God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind of grace. That way you will have everything you need always and in everything to provide more than enough for every kind of good work. God loves a cheerful giver, Paul wrote. It makes me think of the story of Patrick Johnson. Patrick Johnson was an investment advisor and he enjoyed that work and did very well. But he found his real joy when he wrote his first major check for the sake of someone else. And he recounts that. He says that he found out about a need at a homeless shelter for men, homeless men, and they didn't have any air conditioning. The air conditioning had gone out in the building. This is in Mississippi, summertime. And so he wrote a check large check to provide central air conditioning for that building so that that those men would not be in the sweltering heat but the way he recounted that's really beautiful he says that as he wrote the check he said i was i was sort of in an attitude of prayer and as i wrote the check i thought about how this might this probably brings joy to to god then he thought and you know it he really brings It will bring joy to those homeless men who will sleep in air-conditioned comfort. And then he thought, you know, this is really bringing joy to me. And he said, I started laughing out loud. Laughter. You know, what Paul said was God loves a cheerful giver. And the word that Paul uses is hilaros for cheerful. It's the Greek word that is the root of our word, hilarious. Or hilarity. A hilarious giver. Hilarious generosity is what we are called to. Hilarious generosity. Generosity that is so transforming that it transforms our lives and the lives of others because we're responding to God who is generous. And it makes all the difference in the world. And Once that happens, our walk is different. And it's recognizable at 500 feet in all kinds of weather. I think the illustration of that more than any other in the Gospels is the story of Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus, the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree to take a look at Jesus because he was short of stature and he goes up in the tree and Jesus comes right over to him and invites him to dinner. Now, Zacchaeus is a hated tax collector. He's hated because he's thoroughly corrupt. He had to be because the system was thoroughly corrupt. He bid for the job in the region of Jericho, a lot of wealth there, and he bid for the job and he had to pay the Roman government a certain amount, but he could collect whatever he could get out of people and he had the power of Rome behind him. And so he was a very wealthy man. It says he was a tax collector and rich. So he had enriched himself on the backs of other people. and. In the presence of Jesus, in this generosity of Jesus, this generosity of love and grace that he experienced, sitting at the table with him, which is a sign, the table is a sacred place, it's a sign of reconciliation and friendship. Here he is, a hated and despised tax collector, and Jesus is sitting down at the table with him. And in response to that, he says, I'm going to restore everything that I took from anybody Fourfold, I'll give half of all my possessions to the poor. And Jesus' response to that is, today salvation has come to this household. And you know that Zacchaeus walked away from that place with a different walk. With hilarious generosity. I mean, it's hilarious that somebody like Zacchaeus would turn around that quickly change like that so the question for you and for me is that question as we scan our lives inside and out do we have the fruit of hilarious generosity do we have that fruit in our lives is it in our walk can people recognize it at a distance in all kinds of weather the second one that we're talking about tonight is faithfulness faithfulness the word That's translated faithfulness is the Greek word pistis. It's also translated faith. In fact, most of the time it is translated faith. It's the same word. And it has both the connotation of faithfulness, being full of faith, and faithfulness in the sense of fidelity. The word means both things. And it means both things here, I believe. The fruit of the Spirit... What is recognizable in the walk of someone walking in the Spirit, seeking to follow Jesus in his or her life, is both fidelity and being full of faith. It's both of those senses that we think about this evening. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. Faith <clears throat> faith is, is synonymous with trust. It's, it's not just believing something. It's, it's more than just believing. It's, it's really trusting in that. It's, it's believing to the point that you're willing to put all your weight down on that belief. You know, the old illustration that preachers use is, I can believe that chair will hold me up, but faith is sitting in the chair. That's the difference between belief and faith. Susan and I were in Chicago a couple of years ago on vacation. We went to the Willis Tower. It used to be called the Sears Tower. For 25 years, the tallest building in the world, and at 1,351 feet above the ground, not, not 1,350, 1,351 feet above the ground is the observation level of the tower, and there are four glass boxes that stick out from the, uh, from the side of that building four feet out, and they're glass. The floor is glass, the walls are glass, the back is glass, the ceiling is glass. It's a glass box. And you walk out on that thing. Now, believing that the glass is thick enough is one thing. But walking out on that thing, just walking, and then looking down, and it's 103 stories down to the ground, That's trust. That's faith. That's the difference. And the thing about faith that is so needed in our world is that faith really is the opposite of fear. When Jesus and his disciples are out in a boat, Jesus is asleep in the boat and there's a great storm that comes up and the disciples are panicked and, the, and they can't believe he's asleep. And, and so they wake him up and they say, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die here? And he gets up and he uh, says, Peace be still and the storm calms. And then what does he say to them? Why are you afraid, O oh you of little faith? Don't you know in the early church that story was told over and over again to a church in the stormiest situation, under persecution. And they're all asking the question, does God care about us? Is Christ present in any of this at all? I mean, we're in trouble here and He's just asleep at the switch. Don't you know they told this story over and over again and it comforted them When with a word, the storm is stilled, and it's okay. And why are you afraid, you of little faith? Fear is such a problem in our world and in our society. I mean, it is a real problem. Everybody's afraid. The reason that the guy that I was talking about earlier does so well in his business of security systems is because everybody is afraid. And if you think about what's going on in our world, what fuels so many of our problems? It's fear. It's fear that can be so corrosive and destructive in our relationships. It's fear that can be so destructive in our ability to make good decisions. If they're driven by fear, it's probably not going to be a good decision. I mean, it is, it is even more accurate the words of roosevelt spoken in the middle of the great or in the early part i guess of the great depression when he said we have nothing to fear but fear itself because fear itself is really something to be feared isn't it i love the story that john henry falk tells of growing up in east texas and uh, his cousin billy and john henry eight years old were fierce texas rangers they were great lawmen and they had their stick horses and they were fighting crime and and they they were brave and courageous and heroic. John uh, they they just were the best lawmen Texas ever saw. Eight years old. And one day there was a commotion in the hen house and John Henry's mother uh, sent him out to sent them, John Henry and Billy, out to the hen house to check it out because they're fierce lawmen, remember. And so they go out to the chicken house to see what the commotion is and they're looking in the nest and they stand on tiptoe and they look up in a nest and a black snake sticks its head up out of the nest. And John Henry Fox said they made a new door in the hen house. <laughs> and they ran back panicked to the house And they're bruised and scraped up. And John Henry's mother says, Well, I thought you were brave, the bravest, most courageous lawmen in East Texas. And you're afraid of a little old black snake. And Everybody knows a black snake can't hurt you. And he said, his cousin Billy said, No, ma'am, but it can sure enough make you hurt yourself. And that is true. Fear can sure enough make you hurt yourself. And it can sure enough make you hurt those around you. And so we need so much this trust that is faith. And it doesn't mean naive. Just anything goes. But it means having a basic sense of trust as we live our lives so that we're not driven by fear, whether it's a fear of death,